Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brookmarkle, and coming up on the program, award-winning books on Florida history and culture, including Chesterfield Smith, America's Lawyer, by Mary E. Adkins. He believed that lawyers should make the world a better place. We'll discuss the West Florida Rebellion, which took place in present-day Louisiana. On September 23, 1810, American settlers attacked and overran Fort San Carlos in Baton Rouge. And we'll talk about maroons in Florida. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Thank yous were prevalent at the annual Florida Historical Society Awards as outstanding work was recognized and recipients in turn showed their appreciation for that recognition. The 2021 awards were presented as part of the FHS Virtual Public History Forum. Awards were given in a variety of categories, including four for nonfiction books. The Charlton Tabot Award is for a general interest book on a Florida history topic. It's named after longtime University of Miami history professor Charlton Tabot, author of the classic book A History of Florida. This year's Tabot Award recipient is George Herchala for the book The Extraordinary Life of Jane Wood Reno, Miami's trailblazing journalist. Jane Wood Reno is mother of former Attorney General Janet Reno and grandmother of author George Herchala. It's a profound honor to be receiving this award, named after Dr. Thibault, one of the giants of Florida history. This book, uh, I started over 15 years ago and was a longtime labor of love. I found just one of the most interesting stories of character in Florida history I'd come across. I know I'm slightly biased. She is my grandmother. I had known bits and pieces of her life throughout time. I had collected a collection of her writings, uh, The Hell of Politics, back in 1994, but which had piqued my interest into a lot more of her life because it gave a sense of some of her writings and some of her journalism, but only touched upon what a profoundly interesting character she was. And so for years, I wanted to do more, and I began working more and more on a detailed biography of her life instead of her writings. And uh, it just took me into a deep dive into Florida history of the entire 20th century. And one of the most interesting things to me as a historian is I've never experienced anything so much like time travel as being a historian. I feel like I lived during the Great Depression in Miami. I feel such a connection to so many intimate stories of Miami during the Depression and other periods of Miami that I almost feel like, like I've lived it by now. It was 
one of the most fascinating things I've ever done working on this book and to receive an award for this book now from the Florida Historical Society is a great honor to me. The Rembert Patrick Award is for an outstanding scholarly book on a Florida history topic. Rembert Patrick was a respected University of Florida history professor and author of the book Florida Under Five Flags. Mary E. Adkins is a professor at the University of Florida College of Law and was recognized this year for her latest book, Chesterfield Smith, America's Lawyer. It's a great honor to be receiving an award named for a fellow UF historian and uh, another giant in the field. Chesterfield Smith's life was an inspiration and definitely worthy of study. He was born in the cow town of Arcadia at the end of the First World War. He was rudderless. The girl he eventually married described him as a young man who did nothing but shoot crap, play poker, and wouldn't settle down. But World War II changed that for him. He saw what the Nazis did, and that gave him a rudder. And he came home ready to be on the path to reform the world he saw around him. He decided to do that through the law, and he believed that lawyers should make the world a better place. Again, his life inspired me, and I think his story needed telling in these times. I'm honored to be the one to do the telling. And I thank you again for giving his book a higher platform. The Harry T. and Harriet V. Moore Award is for a book relating to Florida's ethnic groups or dealing with a significant social issue from an historical perspective. Harry T. and Harriet V. Moore were the first martyrs of the contemporary civil rights movement killed when a bomb exploded under their home on Christmas night, 1951. This year, Ryosuke Kawai earned the Moore Award for his book, Yamato Colony, The Pioneers Who Brought Japan to Florida. I am very much honored to receive such a prestigious award. I'm grateful to the many people who cooperated with me in my coverage in the United States and Japan for receiving this award. Needless to say, it would not have been possible without the efforts of Mr. John Gregerson and Ms. Reiko Nishioka, who translated from Japanese to English. Looking back, I first came to Florida 1986. I quit the newspaper company I worked for in Japan and wanted to see Grassroots America. So I joined the Daytona Beach News Journal and went around. I chose Florida because I thought it would be fresher to live in a place that seems to have no connection with Japan. However, surprisingly, I learned about the fact that there used to be a Japanese colony here, which is hardly known in Japan, and started interviewing in two countries. The bilateral coverage took a long time and was finally published in Japan, 2016. This is a story of immigrants. Immigrants are an adventure with great will, but in the midst of change in times and society, they encounter events that cannot be helped by own will. In America, I think you all have various routes among the great adventures, there was also a small group of Japanese in Florida. The leader of the Yamato colony had dreamed a great dream, but it was dismantled 
unsuccessfully. However, there were few people who stayed there after that. The last one was Joji Morikami, who donated the vast land he had acquired to the local government. Based on that, the Morikami Museum and Japanese Gardens in Delray Beach was created. George Morikami was a farmer who came to the United States from the pain of a broken heart in Japan and was thinking of returning to Japan after success. For some reason, in the end, he never returned to Japan and was never married, and he died alone as an American. Life is all about things that don't go as a plan. That's why it is interesting. I gathered as many facts as possible and assembled a non-fiction story based on the testimony of the men and women who lived hard to fulfill their dreams against the wind. I would like to dedicate this book to you and your ancestors as well as too many who have dreamed and were adventurous across the ocean. The Stetson Kennedy Award is for a book based on investigative research that casts light on historic Florida events in a manner that is supportive of human rights, traditional cultures, or the natural environment. Stetson Kennedy was best known for his 1942 book, Palmetto Country. Rick Kilby is author of the book, Florida's Healing Waters, Gilded Age Mineral Springs, Seaside Resorts, and Health Spas. Thanks to the Florida Historical Society for this incredible honor. I am almost speechless because of the amazing work that Stetson Kennedy did in his time here in Florida. And I also have a great deal of respect for the work of the society. You guys do such an you know, outstanding job of creating awareness of our rich past in the state. Ben Broatmarkle constantly creates interesting programming in seemingly every form of media imaginable. And Ben Diabasi was a great help when I was researching my book. The archives and cocoa that you guys have are an incredible underutilized resource and I wish more people knew about them. Gainesville's Matheson History Museum was also instrumental. Their extensive collection of postcards, stereographs, and print ephemera are an incredible resource as well. Thanks to former director Peggy McDonald and Caitlin Hoff Mahoney for their assistance. A shout out to Vichy Gehrig in the archives of Clay County for her help researching the stories of Green Cove Springs and Magnolia Springs. Thanks also to the Orange County Regional History Center for their support of years, as well as archives in the, at the St. Petersburg Museum of History and the Pinellas County Heritage Village in Largo. In Florida, we are very fortunate to have two comprehensive resources, the Florida Memory Program at the State Library and Archives in Tallahassee and the P.K. Young Library of Florida History at the University of Florida. Obviously, research is my true joy and the images from these places hopefully help make the Gilded Age come alive in my book. My only regret is that I could not visit more archives and historical societies around the state because they have treasure troves of materials that have never been published before. I couldn't have written this book without the mentorship and skills of Joy Wallace Dickinson, to whom I am eternally grateful. This book evolved out of my first, Finding the Fountain of Youth, and that book came about because two talented friends, Photographer John Moran and author photographer Gary Monroe introduced me both to Meredith Babb at the University Press of Florida. Thank you, thank you, thank you to Meredith and to the University Press of Florida 
for taking a chance on a graphic designer with a big love of Florida history. In addition, thanks to John Moran for his incredible generosity and in allowing me to use his remarkable photos. Of course, he always wants to run his photos as big two-page spreads, but page limitations make that impossible. Of course, I couldn't have done this without the help of my family, friends, and clients who made this book happen with their love, friendship, and support. I'm grateful that you are in my life and acknowledged your contributions to my work. Finally, it's my belief that Florida's waters are both natural and historical treasures that should be preserved at all costs. The stories that Florida's watering places can tell can help us better understand the state we're in today. Preservation of the vestiges of the historical spa facilities, such as those along the Suwannee River, offer wonderful opportunities to understand a tradition that goes back to ancient cultures across the globe. There are only a handful of these places left, and hopefully I've shed more light on why they are an important part of Florida's story. Other awards were presented for a book of fiction based on Florida history, digital media projects, print articles, museum exhibits, and more. The entire Florida Historical Society awards presentation can be seen online at myfloridahistory.org as part of the 2021 Virtual Public History Forum. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime online at myfloridahistory.org to find discounted books on Florida history and culture, listen to archived editions of this program, watch our public television series, Florida Frontiers, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. Joining us now is Connie Lester, Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project and editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. Connie, the West Florida Rebellion is perhaps not that well known, but it did have a significant impact on American history, right? Yes, it did. One of the most unusual special issues of the Florida Historical Quarterly was published in fall 2011. What made it unusual was its focus on what in 1810 was called Spanish West Florida, an area between the Pearl River and the Mississippi River in what is now the state of Louisiana. It was the scene of the so-called West Florida Rebellion that occurred under the Lone Star flag of the West Florida Republic. As the commemoration of the rebellion got underway, historian Sam Hyde approached me about publishing a special issue of the Florida Historical Quarterly on the event. I had to give it some serious thought. 
After all, this was really about Louisiana, Mississippi, and Alabama history. The farthest extension of the republic ended at the Perdido River, even though Milton, Florida, claims to have lived under the Lone Star flag. But Professor Hyde made a compelling argument that local and national actions associated with the West Florida Rebellion established precedents for future American foreign policy and set the stage for American imperialism of the late 19th century. I must admit also that it appealed to my own editorial imperialism to push the Florida boundaries into Louisiana. I agreed to publish the special issue. Most Americans have never heard of the West Florida Rebellion and the Republic it spawned, so a brief bit of background is in order. President Thomas Jefferson's purchase of the Louisiana Territory from the French in 1803 did not include all of modern-day Louisiana. The territory that lay between the Mississippi River on the west and the Pearl River on the east was claimed by Spain, although a significant number of American citizens had settled in this region and they believed the area rightfully belonged to the U.S. As Hyde notes in his introduction to the special issue, the area had been successively claimed by France, Britain, and Spain and was a chaotic cauldron of divided loyalties, overlapping land claims, and differing perspectives on the nature and purpose of government. In addition, Spain's hold on the area was weak. The only significant garrison was located at Pensacola, with smaller posts at Mobile and Baton Rouge. Baton Rouge had only 30 or so soldiers to defend Spanish claims. And Spanish control over West Florida was contested by three different factions, right? It was. The American faction resented their exclusion from the Louisiana Purchase and advocated annexation by the United States. Spanish loyalists held lucrative land grants and enjoyed little interference from the Spanish government. Most paid little or no taxes and were free from the types of services like jury duty that are required of citizens. Finally, there were independents who wanted to create their own nation. During the summer of 1810, plans for the rebellion were completed, and on September 23, 1810, American settlers attacked and overran Fort San Carlos in Baton Rouge. They declared themselves under the rule of the Republic of West Florida and established the capital at St. Francisville. On December 15, 1810, Congress declared the territory part of the United States, although Spain did not cede the area until 1819 and the signing of the Adams-Ones Treaty. Well, Connie, how is this scuffle in the wilderness a factor in national and international events? Jim Cusick argued in his article that both East and West Florida of the era represented not a frontier but a borderland, that is, an area in which borders are porous and loyalties are weak and influenced by competing government structures and regulations. He notes that on the borderlands, concepts of loyalty are highly localized, and self-interest and self-protection are the chief traits of border residents. Authority in borderland areas was subject to challenge not by the oppressed, he wrote, but by the ambitious and discontented. In the period 1778 to 1818, the borderlands of the Floridas 
were marked by 14 episodes of conspiracy, revolt, and invasion. Encouraged by the shifting European alliances created by the Napoleonic Wars that left their American claims unattended and white hunger for indigenous land, violence and rebellion characterized the borderlands of both the East and West Florida. Steve Belko ties the West Florida Rebellion to the establishment of American foreign policy, specifically the creation of the Monroe Doctrine. On October 27, 1810, acting on reports of the West Florida Rebellion, President James Madison met secretly with his cabinet and issued the No Transfer Resolution, a statement denying the right of European powers to transfer land in the Western Hemisphere to other European nations. It was ideologically fundamental to the Monroe Doctrine of 1823. Acting on the President's request, Congress confirmed the No Transfer Resolution and the occupation of West Florida to the Perdido River. In December 1811, Congress admitted Louisiana to the Union, including the area between the Pearl and Mississippi Rivers. National and international events were factors in the West Florida Rebellion, and in turn, the rebellion shaped American foreign policy. Interesting as always. Thanks, Connie. You're welcome. Connie Lester is Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. Son of a gun, we'll have big fun on the bio. This is Florida Frontiers. Descendants of escaped slaves in Florida were called Maroons. Holly Baker is public history coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. From the introduction of slavery until the mid-19th century, escaped slaves often banded together for protection and formed their own independent communities. In Florida, maroon groups fiercely resisted colonial powers who tried to re-enslave them by forming alliances with Seminoles. Dr. Justin Iverson is the historian for the 403rd Wing of the Air Force Reserve at Keesler Air Force Base in Biloxi, Mississippi. He wrote an article in the fall 2019 issue of the Florida Historical Quarterly called Fugitives on the Front, Maroons in the Gulf Coast Borderlands War, 1812 to 1823. Dr. Iverson told me more about the Maroons of Florida. Maroons is sort of someone who's a runaway enslaved person, or maybe they've been born free into a Maroon community. And Maroon bands are basically just these groups of of runaway enslaved peoples um, who form their autonomous groups living outside and away from slavery. And so the term maroon is actually derived from the Spanish word cimarron, uh, which kind of meant like wild or, or beast. So that's kind of the point. These are runaway slave communities. And then they obviously, they can survive long enough, have children and, and prosper and, and have people that are born free. But if they hadn't been living in that society, they'd be enslaved by wherever they are in, in the Caribbean, Latin America, or here in the United States. In Florida, Maroons and Seminoles became allies and created communities together in order to protect their autonomy. So their objective in Florida then is to evade re-enslavement or enslavement if they're born free in these communities and 
combine that with Seminole Indians is to just avoid white encroachment into Florida, into their land. Um, and so these objectives are pretty much the same across the board in the Atlantic world. If you look at other room groups in, say, Jamaica or Brazil or in Haiti, uh, it's always to avoid reenslavement from white slave owners. So they fight various maroon wars to prevent that, or sometimes they'll ally with other European imperial rivals to form a stronger coalition and uh, and stop slave owners from capturing them and, and bringing them back into slavery. And so that's the goal in Florida, really from the late 18th century and then the first couple decades of the 19th century and before the Seminoles are removed from Florida to go out west into Oklahoma and Texas. In the first decades of the 19th century, Maroon communities flourished in Florida as imperial powers fought for control of the region. Maroons in Florida gained power by conducting raids on plantations. Maroons conduct a lot of raids, especially across the Georgia-Florida border um, in the first two decades of the 19th century. And a significant purpose of conducting these raids is um, not only to gather supplies and goods, things that they can use, it could be clothes, weapons, Food especially is important, but but also it's to capture people. And uh, what Maroons do throughout the Atlantic world, and that's what the Seminole Maroons do in Florida, is you capture other plantation slaves during these plantation raids so that they can join your community. But the general idea is they capture people to join their community, to build that community, um, so they can later integrate them. So the point is to just gather people, collect people uh, on these raids so that they join your community, so they can build your community, become bigger and stronger over time. The Treaty of Moultrie Creek, signed in 1823 near St. Augustine, ended the first Seminole War in Florida. The treaty also set up a reservation system for Seminoles in Florida and directed the Seminoles to return any escaped slaves to white owners. Seventeen Seminole chiefs signed the treaty, along with several Maroons. One signatory of the treaty was Vacapacasi, or Cow Driver, a leader of a Maroon band who was part Black and part Native American. After the treaty, the Seminoles and their allies were forced to fight again for their freedom. Many Seminoles and Black Seminoles were removed from Florida by the United States government and sent to reservations out west. Dr. Iverson. Even though the, the treaty is signed and, and the Seminoles are supposed to uh, return Black Seminoles or Seminole Maroons, these, these members who are of, of African descent that are among their community uh, living in Florida, they don't actually do it. So these Seminole Maroons will thrive still in Florida for another couple decades. Most of them moved further south. The treaty at Moultrie Creek was in northern Florida, so a lot of these Maroons moved further south to um, communities near Tampa, and even further south after that. And then there's this big conflagration in the 1830s and early 1840s during the Second Seminole War, in which a lot of these black Seminoles, I call them Seminole Maroons, fight. And then, unfortunately, they lose that war too, and part of the treaty at Payne's Landing that settled after the Second Seminole War forces the Seminoles to move west and to leave black members of the nation in Florida to be sold back into slavery. And so they don't let a lot of those members stay in Florida to be re-enslaved. So that, um, a lot of these black Seminoles, these Seminole Maroons, move to Oklahoma and Texas after the Second Seminole War, where they are still threatened by being re-enslaved by, by white owners in those regions and even by some Native Americans um, in the Seminole Nation, as well as the Creek and Cherokee that are already in the Southwest. After the Treaty of Moultrie Creek, some Maroons headed to Mexico after slavery was abolished there in 1829 and created Maroon communities there. Many Maroons from Florida also found refuge in the Bahamas, where their descendants still live today. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker. 
public history coordinator for the Florida Historical Society, and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. You can always find us online at myfloridahistory.org and on Facebook. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Holly Baker and Connie Lester. Our web extras are produced by Jerry Klein. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brookmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.